You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Frankie and Anna Wells. We've been editors for Manufacturing.net and IEN.com, covering the manufacturing industry for the better part of 15 years now. Every week, we take the five biggest stories on our websites and discuss the implications they might have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Jeff, how are you doing this week? Not too bad, David. You know, I was tired, but Anna, I popped open a Mountain Dew, and now I'm feeling great. Whoa, you should do something extreme now, yeah. like snowboard. It's gross. You do a podcast. You mm, do an extreme podcast. Anna, how are you doing? Fine. Yeah? Can you taste the Mountain Dew? Oh. Mm. Mm. The reflection of it is giving me a tan. All right. All right. Our first story this week. Nikola founder faces fraud charges. Trevor Milton resigned from Nikola in September amid allegations of fraud. The startup focuses on electric and hydrogen powered trucks. On Thursday, Milton surrendered on criminal charges for making false and misleading statements about the company and duping novice investors. For example, Milton said the company had early success at creating a fully functioning semi-truck prototype known as the Nikola One when he knew that the prototype was inoperable. He also said the company built an electricity and hydrogen-powered pickup truck known as the Badger and even said the company was producing hydrogen at a reduced cost when they weren't making any at any cost. Anna, the list of lies on this one I found impressive. Yeah, it's pretty impressive for sure. Um... I'm going to kick off by throwing our listeners a curveball and take what I think is probably usually Jeff's position (laughs) on this one. But um, the part of the story that I didn't like, guys, was um, how the indictment details how he's duped all these investors with no prior experience in the market. And I guess the wording of the indictment is intended to make him look like a massive jerk, but... I don't know that it's the responsibility of any company to account for the knowledge baseline and like naivete of people, quote, with no prior experience in the stock market who began trading during the coronavirus pandemic to replace or supplement income that they had lost or to occupy their time during the lockdown, mm-hmm. unquote. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I'm all about finding ways to protect people that can't protect themselves if they need it, whatever. But can we also just acknowledge that when people hop online and start like a TD Ameritrade account or a Robinhood or they start buying stocks and they're like, they're assuming some risk there, correct? I mean, whether a business commits fraud, uh, like fraud is fraud, right? That's Mm -hmm. unilaterally, like regardless of the investor, I don't think it's worse or better based on the type. I don't know. I thought that was weird how much they dove into that specific point. I mean, this guy's got a lot of problems to deal with, obviously, but like, just because you don't know what you're doing, like yeah, it reminded me <laughs> of a uh, a person complaining about losing at the craps table the first time they tried. Mm-hmm. I mean, doesn't it sound like there must have been one of these investors that had some clout somewhere and really started shaking some trees and in order to get this much focus and just this vehemently angry at this guy? Yeah, I mean, and it's not without merit though. He obviously made some outrageous claims, but. Where are we finding these guys to head up these startups? Mm-hmm. I understand he's a founder, but there is so much similar to this with the Lordstown dynamic. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look at Steve Burns. He was the former CEO of Lordstown. They got kicked out of there. The guy had no engineering, no manufacturing background, no automo- barely any automotive background at all. And he was going to be heading up Lordstown Motors with all of these huge plans, all of this money coming in. This was similar. When you look at the background of Trevor Milton, um, basically there's some discrepancy as the first company he worked with. He dropped out of college. He was working for a security company. He says he was bought out for like a quarter million dollars. The other people are like, we kind of told him to go away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then he tried doing this online classified ad business for selling used vehicles that flopped. Mm-hmm. And then he did manage to, to kind of hitch onto some of these hydrogen technology mm-hmm. companies. And that's how we founded Nikola. But <laughs> again, like, there was no qualifications here. And I understand mm-hmm. a lot of these folks, they saw a, a non-gasoline-powered vehicle company. They were following sort of the wave of momentum that was behind it. But if they would have looked at this individual who was making all of these claims mm-hmm. and with, with no merit and no understanding of what they were, on the other side of that, we've been 
I have at least been sort of critical of Elon Musk mm-hmm. in terms of what he does and the way he chooses to run Tesla. He was the product guy. There was no doubting his engineering or science prowess there. It was more everything else. It's the stuff that he was saying, either communication or marketing-wise or some of his forecasting and, and, and the financials. This guy, man, just saying a bunch of stuff that they, was not even close to true in terms of what they were capable of producing. And, I mean, did you see some of this stuff? It was way, way too similar to Lordstown, mm-hmm. even down to the prototype mm-hmm. yeah. that didn't work, and they rolled it down a hill yeah. in yeah. order to get some footage. There was <laughs> there was a door they had to tape on yeah. to the, the, the frame in order for it to look legit. Yeah. So those are pretty outrageous fraudulent claims to make i do agree with anna in terms of the backlash that's coming against him from the investment side of things yeah this should have all been coming internally like get this guy out of here yeah I agree. We, we've got some we've got a valid idea we've got some technology behind it he is the wrong person mm-hmm. um and i mean things came to fruition and he's not there anymore um but man just need to get better people running well, these places. So I think part of the problem is that with startups is that it's always a small group of entrepreneurs who aren't necessarily great at anything. You know, they have a great idea. They're looking for the right people. It reminded me a lot of, uh, I read Mark Randolph's book. He was a co-founder of Netflix. He wrote the book, That Will Never Work. And he acknowledges that he was the man to get Netflix off the ground. But when it was once it was up and running and a company He's not your guy anymore, mm-hmm. and he had to move on. And I think that's part of the problem with some of these CEOs is that, you know, they start as a founder, they become an exec, and then they they think, you know, because they made it a multi-million, a multi-billion dollar company, they should still be at the helm, and maybe they're not the best person anymore. Right. They know nothing about product development, nothing about uh, manufacturing, exactly. Yeah. Somebody's got to be tapping this guy in particular on the shoulder because it seems like he also had sort of an infatuation with his personal worth. Mm-hmm. We ran a story today about... At one point, his stock options were worth over $8 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, for this company? Yeah. For a company that has never produced a product? Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That makes sense, right? Well, the other thing, to your point, another thing about uh, that was similar to Lordstown was how they lied about having, he lied about reservations versus actual orders yeah. in terms of what they had coming in. But what I was curious about when it came to startup CEOs is how much, how what is the breaking line or the breaking point between the fake it until you make it as a CEO and fraud? So when you try to list your company on the stock market, yeah, like yeah but it's like different um, rules apply. I sure, mean. No, I understand that. And it's like, it reminded me of uh, that uh, Theranos CEO, yeah. uh, Elizabeth Holmes with a blood screening startup. And she just, you know, they were really close, really close, maybe not as close as she was telling anybody. Well, actually she was, they were never as close as she was telling people, but, you know, essentially trying to buy time until the dream is realized. You know, talking about Elon Musk, when he talks about Tesla being a month away from bankruptcy during the Model 3 ramp, I mean, I feel like part of that is that role of the startup executive is you got to fake it till you make it. True, but when they're faking, they're talking about, especially with Musk, it's like, it'll be ready, it'll be ready, not... We're doing these things. We have this technology. I mean, this guy was so clueless. Yeah. He was even talking about stuff they were developing versus things they were sourcing. Oh, yeah. And then you bring in the truck that they were supposedly making, mm-hmm. the, the Badger truck that was going to actually compete with like Lordstown. Yeah. I mean, he was just operating in a different stratosphere in mm-hmm. terms of what reality really was for this company. Fake it till you make it. I mean, I get that, but you can't just completely make up a different reality from yeah. what you're living in. I mean, there, I, I get it. You can't tell people that you're developing new battery technology and other components and just sourcing them from a third party. I mean, isn't the third party when they're reading the art because he lied in articles, podcasts? Yeah. You know, the list of things that he lied in was actually also impressive. But I mean, do you think the third party's just sitting there like, no, <laughs> well, you know? at some point, I mean, they probably aren't too concerned if they're still getting orders and it's working like. You know, I'm not too worried about it. True. It's just when things start falling apart, which they obviously mm-hmm. have, yeah. uh, that's when it becomes an issue. And yep. to take advantage of the people that were bored during the pandemic yeah. These is unconscionable. Poor novice investors looking to supplement their income by choosing Robinhood instead of online poker <laughs> is just incredulous garbage. Settle down. Mm, mm. I I gotta say, Too much of the do. of the people I feel sympathy for, novice investor is never gonna be high. <laughs> yeah. But it does. It did remind me of like when I became the cooler at a craps table the first time playing, and just 
Like no one, I, I mean, I wasn't complaining to anybody. I'm just like, yeah, this is all on me. I didn't understand what I was doing and I lost a lot of money for myself and a lot of people. And I bowed out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next most popular story. Glenn Fittick fueling trucks with leftover whiskey. Typically, Glenn Fittick would sell off spent grains from the malting process to be used in cattle feed. But now the company has found a new use for it. The company is updating its delivery trucks to operate on low-emission biogas generated by waste products from the whiskey distil- distilling process. The tech converts production waste into an ultra-low carbon fuel gas. Biogas is currently used in three trucks that typically run on liquefied natural gas, but it could one day be used to fuel more trucks for parent company William Grant & Sons, which owns multiple Scotch whiskeys, Irish whiskey Tullamore Dew, and Hendrix Gin... The gin of all gins. The best gin. The gin of champions? The gin of this champion. (laughs) Uh, Anna, I thought this to be a really cool story, how they were using uh, a byproduct um, for fuel. Yeah, you did think it was a really cool story. Mm, The gin of gins. The gin of gins, Ginnerton. Oh, yeah. David Ginnerton Manti. I'll switch Uh, it. It'll be Um, I, yeah, I enjoyed the story. I thought it was fascinating that, um, like this R and D play, like the application for this came actually from the parent company of, um, Glenn Fittick, William Grant and Sons, which is pretty impressive emphasis for a f- beverage company. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they only sell spirits. However, like they boast of this entrepreneurial spirit within the company. And I think a lot of companies say this, but in this case it actually checks out. So they have, um, they also have this brand called Discarded that uses products that would otherwise go to waste, um, including a rum that's flavored with cascara, which is the berry on coffee plants that's otherwise not being used. Mm. Um, they're also working on a rum made with would-be discarded banana peels. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. But yeah. I mean, like, it's cool, right? I mean, like, like oh, they had... They, they have a, a blockchain whiskey bottle that allows shoppers to digitally track their whiskey's production journey. Like, they're, okay, they're just doing cool. a lot that's of crazy cool, cool yeah. stuff. Yeah. So um, they've also credited themselves with, quote, their leading role in reinvigorating the gin industry, which I don't believe they're giving David mm. quite enough credit. Mm-hmm. For I'm the doing a case by case, guys. To the, to the gin industry. Well, and his gin preference has definitely evolved over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, we've moved up the shelf. Yeah. <laughs> As we've moved further into our career, we've moved up the shelf. There's actually words on the bottles I'm buying now. <laughs> At least you, yeah. when you can read them. So, and I got to say, I hear, you know, banana peels, and that sounds cool, but I immediately think 99 bananas. Oh. oh. Yeah. I'm sure it's going to be better on the palate, given their body of work. Uh, Jeff, what did you think of this story? I can't believe everybody has a 99 banana story. Like, mm. that's pretty obscure. I used Boy. to bartend. We had the same oh. bottle for, like, 14 years. I don't know. There's <laughs> much left in it. That's- Horrible. You get um, the like, what is it, the the bridal shower or the <laughs> bachelorette party? Mm, dust that, off the ninety nine. But that was the shot they were giving away. Mm. Like mystery as a shot. poor college shot. student, like, what do you got? Yeah, it's Ugh. the mystery bottle. Ugh. Um, yeah, very cool. And I think we're seeing a lot of these processing companies, and in particular, some distilleries, really come on with some cool technologies, ways that they've been able to sort of reformulate what they have on hand to either create some new products. Or even during the pandemic, we saw a lot of distilleries coming out with hand sanitizer and, and mm-hmm. other things True. to, to yeah. help. So a lot of cool stuff coming out of there. I think some of this may come a little bit, too, from the fact that this is a beverage company. Now, it's not like they're producing orange juice or some other things that are much more price sensitive or margin sensitive. There is a better margin on alcoholic products. But still, I think when you're operating in that environment, you don't, you can't afford to be wasteful. If you have something that can be turned into a viable product in some way, shape, or form, they're looking at it very closely. And kudos to uh, to these folks at Glen Fittage for finding a way to take something they have on hand and make it not just use it so it's not wasted, but it's a, it's a really sensible application. It mm-hmm. makes all the sense in the world. I was also thinking a little bit about our conversation last week, you know, Jeff Bezos wanting to build stuff on the moon as opposed to basically looking at what he could do in his own business to help improve things from mm-hmm. yeah. an environmental perspective. And, and these guys are doing it in a real common sense way. So Kind of feel bad for the cows, though. Can you imagine your feed being switched out? And it's just like, this used to taste better. Mm, mm. Wow. Also. That's such sympathy. Well, I mean, all <laughs> of a sudden. A, it's an interesting take there. All of a sudden, the feed switches the out and you're just take. like. <laughs> of the cows. Yeah. This used to be more of a high-end grain. Yeah. With a better back, with a better finish. 
Uh, I'm curious about. <laughs> I'm curious about how's how knowing for their refined palates. Exactly, yeah. exactly. They're you know a discerning group. Um, how does it smell? Do you think because there's we have the uh, local pizza place that chain uh, turned their fleet of delivery vehicles using biogas. And man, you smell that uh, you smell the grease from the fryer coming as they're mm-hmm. uh, delivering. So that's the only thing I was curious about as to whether or not they'd figured that out. Um, the other is how you kind of talk about how upcycling is an emerging category. And so I looked into other things that spent brewing grains have been used to. They've been baked into crackers, made into bread, and even made into dog treats. So I thought that was a pretty uh, mm-hmm. way to upcycle. Well, did you see the comment on the site? The one guy said Alaska Brewing. Is actually doing a similar oh, thing with okay. the cakes that they're actually burning for uh, for fuel. Oh, for fuel, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they, with, I mean, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to plug Alaska Brewing because their beer is fantastic. <laughs> if you need an unsolicited spokesperson, Alaska Brewing, just let me know. Uh, well, lost food is lost money in that space, and so there was a creamery that recently repurposed its way to make a new carbonated drink in a pickle factory. This is what I found interesting is making a new savory vegetable drink with leftover brine. Ugh. I also want to go back to lightly sweetened, way carbonated drink. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> you, you know you got to try it out. No. It's it's good for the planet and good for you. Oh, gross. So Jeff. <laughs> Mountain don't. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Next story this week. Uh the first story was one dead, four missing in German chemical explosion, but it continued to update throughout the week. An explosion shook an industrial park for chemical companies in Germany on Tuesday. As of Friday, five workers were found dead at the chemical manufacturing site, with a couple still missing and more than 30 injured. The official cause of the blast still isn't known, but Corenta, the company that operates ChemPark, says the explosion was linked to storage tanks filled with solvents. The explosion happened at the waste management facility at the Chem Park site. City officials warned people not to let their children play outside, use outside pools, or even eat fruit or vegetables from their backyards for the next couple of days. And Anna, the first thing I thought was, maybe you just throw that fruit out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe just move on from that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, I read an interesting follow-up report uh, in the German public broadcaster Deutschwell's website. Um, and they talked a lot about uh, the chemical industry in Germany. Mm-hmm. And so these chem parks are kind of located quite like up and down the Rhine River. Mm-hmm. And they said that the chemical capital of Germany is Cologne, this region. Um, so anyway, they, they posted this article that explains like why there are so many chemical plants in Germany and why they are so close to cities. Because I think that's kind of alarming when you see just how close <clears throat> these chem parks are to major cities like Cologne, um, one of the points that they made is that the chemical parks combine so many companies together on the same grounds that they're appealing because they actually enhance safety for these companies. Mm. They say that the parks are capable of supporting the necessary safety infrastructure, like fire departments that are specially trained in like handling hazardous substances or putting out chemical fires. So like we discussed recently with that fire at VW, um, when there's a dedicated on-site crew that can handle emergency scenarios and be first on the scene, then you can really limit the impact. Um, but this city where the fire took place, it was sort of built up around the chemical industry in the 1800s, and many chemical companies began collaborating with one another um, using the Rhine River. And so Deutschwell contends that the chemical factory density in these urban areas is actually a safety benefit. Mm-hmm. Though it's hard to see that a bit when you're a resident probably receiving these kind of warnings, which are terrifying. Mm-hmm. And if it makes you nervous, just know that this com- concept was actually copied by a lot of other regions, mm-hmm. the, like Chem Park concept. Yeah. So it's being used a lot in China as well, where they have just concentrated oh. a lot of these chemical companies altogether. That's I mean, reassuring. Yeah, I got to say FYI. that that sounds... I mean, that sounds good to me, though, because when you look at it, they have three different facilities in the region with 70 different companies operating at them. Mm-hmm. You know, Bayer is still one of the largest companies there. But, you know, one of your points last week was that, you know, some companies can't afford to have their own on-site EMS Most. services, stuff yeah. like that. So, you know, maybe that is a benefit, whereas when there's a tragedy like this, 
you know, it does put a lot of people in the area at risk, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, fair point. Like, if other industrial parks were run in a, a similar way where you sort of co-op services and mm-hmm. everybody has, you know, pitches in to kind of support some of that safety infrastructure, that would be interesting. You don't see a lot of that outside of this industry, I don't think. Uh, Jeff, what were your thoughts on the story? Well, I'll take the other side of that because this is a unique setup with this chem park dynamic. Um, it also sort of masks accountability, though. Because mm-hmm. you have all of these companies here, it still has not been made public who was actually at fault. Hmm. They talk about these big companies, Bear and uh, the other. Uh, the other one escapes me. Um, hope I'm saying this correctly. Leverkusen um, sounds or, good to me, Jeff. Yeah, Lever- yeah Lanxus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lanxus was the other big chemical company that also operates there. But there's also like 30 other companies in this complex. Mm-hmm. It's eight square miles. So who was at fault? That's who, um, do you, who do you come back right, to? Because yeah, yeah. I mean, you're talking about fruits and vegetables. They closed down playgrounds. Mm-hmm. They told kids to take their shoes off before they went in the house because they don't want. They aren't sure what's going on with all the particulates in the air because mm-hmm. they don't know which chemical it was, which plant it came from. So yeah, I, I get having that infrastructure from a safety perspective and maybe even a best practices perspective, but it also kind of lets you hide a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I don't think one company is responsible for this. I think the park is responsible because it happened at a waste management facility. And so I think these storage tanks filled with solvents might have been from multiple manufacturers. And, you know, that's part of the infrastructure that they pay for that hope they is supposed to protect them. And that looks what like what failed. Even still, somebody is ultimately accountable. Oh, and yeah. To say it's just, well, this eight-mile facility or eight square mile facility or area, mm-hmm. again, who do you, there has to be somebody at the end of the day, because in this sector, what we've learned is unless somebody actually is at fault, nobody learns. Yeah. And there isn't any more proactive measures taken to avoid this type of thing happening. Mm-hmm. No, and it was, uh, I mean, anytime it's a chemical explosion and there's unknown substances going into the air or water, that's what I find to be the biggest threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. All right. Next most popular story this week. GM is suing Ford over Blue Cruise. General Motors thinks that Ford's Blue Cruise driver assist technology infringes on the patent it holds for its own hands-free driving technology, Super Cruise. GM's Super Cruise was unveiled in 2012, though it wasn't used until 2017, and Ford didn't have a rival until this year. Ford says that it was, quote, left with no choice but to sue claiming that Ford knew what it was doing. Mm. (laughs) Ford fired back, saying that GM is being inconsistent with its response because it has had zero issues with other cruise names, like Hyundai's Smart Cruise and BMW's Active Cruise Control. Ford says that the word cruise has been used for decades by every automaker. Think of cruise control. It notes that this is just an upgrade. GM is hoping to block Ford's use of the name and make them pay for it. Anna, it seems like a weird word to go after. And, uh, I mean, I'd hate to blame GM for being litigious, but this seems a little uh, patty cake to me. But you are, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know. It's hard for me not to side with Ford on this one when they lay out their points about how GM didn't go after any of those other automakers for using Cruise in their, like, system names Mm -hmm. um, that were applying to basically enhanced technologies, right? Um, So they basically contend that the word cruise has been applied for so long in a general sense, I think, that it's taken kind of a shorthand meaning, and I'd have to agree with that. Mm -hmm. If you look back on the history of cruise control, um, there were a lot of visionaries involved, but this is the most interesting one. So um, I read a report um, by the Smithsonian that said that cruise control was actually invented in the mid-1950s by a blind engineer named Ralph Teeter. Have you heard this before? No. So he called it Speedostat. <laughs> and it was designed at a time when accidents at highway speeds were like catastrophic. Yeah. Um, and I think they instituted like a really low speed limit after World War II. Um, so Chrysler was the first to implement Speedostat, though they called it autopilot. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, which we've discussed autopilot at length on this show. But um, but GM was the company that first called it cruise control. Though the term cruise control seems to have been co-opted over time and used by nearly every automaker. So at the time, though, popular mechanics described Speedostat as a kind of power-operated accelerator or governor with extras. And it said it definitely takes us several miles farther down the road to automatic pilot for cars. 
And what year was that that it came out? It came out in nineteen fifth, the mid nineteen fifties. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I don't know. It's like, you know, some historians say that that Ralph Teeter had no vision for like autonomous vehicles because the context of that was just so outside of you know he was born in nineteen I don't know mm-hmm. a long time ago, um, but it does seem like it was maybe the first step towards this. Um, and for me, Ford's argument that Cruise applies to the evolution of automation technology, I think it holds up. I mean, as far as I can tell, nobody owns the word cruise. Mm -hmm. And if somebody does, then (laughs) Carnival Cruise Lines will be mad. They have to change (laughs) their name to like Carnival Big Boats. (laughs) They, uh, I mean, if Ford could always pivot and uh, go back with Speedostat. Speedostat. It's got a great history. It is, Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, Jeff, is GM just being a fly in the ointment? I just don't understand why they're even caring. Like, mm-hmm. of all the things they got, first of all, they're coming off a great quarter. They are. 40% increase in sales over last year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, last year sucked for everybody, but still, that's a huge thing to tout. And even bigger than that is they saw record deliveries of their Bolt EV. So build on that and focus on that. They've also been a, a lot of positive play from Wall Street because of their focus on electric vehicles. We're talking about a technology that has drawn nothing but negative um, criticism and negative attention because of Tesla and their autopilot. Mm-hmm. This is a hands-off driving technology. Let it be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't buy a vehicle because it has a similar technology to another company. There's a lot of other factors, and these two things look basically the same. So what if they're called the same thing or mm-hmm. similar to it? I mean, it's like putting a, a different uh, – look at all the different things that have come from um, – road support in terms of like you know it started with OnStar and everybody has their own version of that mm-hmm. who cares if I'm calling a vehicle that has OnStar but it's not called OnStar mm-hmm. the same thing that's not why I bought the vehicle <laughs> yeah. it's the same technology yeah. so for them to focus this much energy this much energy on this particular thing is just surprising to me mm-hmm. they have great stuff to talk about and the reality is since 2016 GM's global sales have been down year over year mm-hmm. they finally have a chance to right that ship Let's talk about that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you think is hands-free driving an extension of cruise control or is it a new tech is it a new feature is it a new technology? I think that it is an extension of automated safety technology. So I think they're in the same wheelhouse. Yeah. To me they are. Mhm. I agree. Okay. Yeah. All right. Our most popular story this week, Toyota lobbies against electric vehicles. Toyota has been exposed for opposing stricter emissions limits and electric vehicle initiatives around the world. While the automaker says it embraces electric vehicles and is working to reduce its overall emissions, it says that the expectations for such a fast transition from gas vehicles to electric ones is unrealistic and that hybrids should continue to play a role. Some say the company is merely in panic mode after years of betting on the wrong horse in a race to clean up the auto sector. Toyota bought <clears throat> Toyota brought gas vehicle hybrids, gas electric hybrids into the mainstream and also invested heavily in hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, but those vehicles remain expensive and the infrastructure just isn't there. Toyota has re- reportedly gone from an industry leader to the worst in the auto industry when it comes to corporate climate lobbying. And I found that shocking. Yeah, um I don't because I've been kind of trying to follow this. They've had a lumpy couple of years with all their competitors putting out these extensive EV lines and Toyota just being like, nope, we're sticking <laughs> sticking with hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to keep doing the hybrid thing. And I don't know. I, you know, I, it seems a little bit like sour grapes maybe for putting their eggs in the wrong basket. I mean, they seem to want to have it both ways here. If they're acknowledging that all electric vehicles are the future and they seem fully capable of producing them for the Chinese market, then Maybe they this was just a misstep with the U.S. market. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that being said, I could see hybrids, especially plug-ins, being a valuable stepping stone, especially for people who have this sort of unshakable concern about the lack of infrastructure for um, public charging, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of not existent right now still. Right. Um, I know that makes a lot of people nervous, right? So the idea of having like a backup tank you know, maybe that's valuable to some people. However, I think the problem is that the government and also the public, um, they have a really hard time differentiating between performance hybrids and hybrids that are designed to cut gasoline-related 
fossil fuel emissions. Mm-hmm. And even some of those hybrids fall so short on their storage capacity that they're really not making the kind of dent that we really desperately need. I mean, if you look at the plugins that are on the market today, and there's a lot of them, um, the EV range for most of them is like 20, 30 miles. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we have the time to monkey around with that. I think that they say, if Toyota's saying that like we can't transition fast enough, we need these as a crutch, I think this will slow it down. Yeah. So I guess I see why they're doing it from a business perspective. I don't think it's the right move, though. Well, Jeff, when it comes to a public with unshakable concern over the technology, I think that's where you come in. And so maybe this shakable concern over EVs. Well, no, about the fact that we don't have a very good public charging infrastructure. Although most people charge their EVs at home and they don't drive them across the country, you know, at this point in time, that's just not been done yet. Sorry, not unshakable concern. Skepticism. Skepticism. Over EVs. Well, my whole thing is, first of all, just looking at it from a consumer's perspective. Okay. Toyota is not wrong. Okay. Mm-hmm. Again, here in the U.S., and we're in a little bit of a vacuum, and we've said this many times, 1% of vehicle sales are EVs. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's not mass demand right now. So when you look at the things that are going on societally right now, Toyota has a point. If they're going to offer products that allow for this transition to be made more incrementally than mm-hmm. all at once, and if people feel more comfortable with that, having a product that allows people to do that makes all the sense in the world. And if that's your business strategy, do that. Tout that. Talk about that. Stick with that. But in today's political climate, to actively lobby against environmental right. controls and EV um, sort of uh, beneficial EV regulations or guidelines, that's just a really, really bad idea because mm-hmm. this is what you get. I was a little disappointed when we were because we were talking about this story a little bit before it ran. And I was hoping when I read it, it'd be like, Toyota's like, forget it. You know what? We're gonna re- we're gonna launch the equivalent of like 500 horsepower gas powered muscle cars Camry. just to be different. Yeah, just to, you know we're going <laughs> we're really going Camry. the other like way on that. Camry V12. Yeah. We're gonna put instead out. of just you know plugging their their electric hybrids. But um, I get what they're saying and it does make sense. But to take this approach with such a hard line is mm-hmm. sort of from a business perspective just a bad move. I yeah. mean, it, it's perplexing. It does not shine them yeah, in a good yeah. light necessarily, I don't think. But The one thing that I always think about with this, with electric vehicles, so right now, the one environmental argument, I think, is because obviously you have to plug them in. 60% of electricity is produced by burning fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So potentially, if we do, and to Toyota's point here a little bit, if for some somehow, overnight, we are able to transition to all electric vehicles, like the grid would have to pump out twice as much electricity. Mm-hmm. And we already have problems with our grid. So there is something to be said for more of a gradual increase in a transition as opposed to, you know, snapping your fingers and, and everything's different. But I mean, I think it, some of these goals we're talking about like 2035, 2040. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, Toyota, based on their history anyways, I would have a little bit of faith in them getting it done by then. But, uh, well, everybody, and it, you know, we've always talked about the consumer is going to drive this. What do they want? And that's what the car maker is going to provide. But again, with everybody setting these very strong limitations, and I think about myself, what I started out driving and what I drive now, I just, at the end of the day, you want something safe, reliable, and it's, if it costs less to operate, great. Yeah. You know, I think we've transitioned a little bit. I think there is sort of a different mood with the American consumer, maybe outside of a lot of the truck drivers. Or, yeah. Uh, um, pickup truck drivers and some people buying those they still i think tend to look a little bit more at some of the old school dynamics of vehicle purchasing but Mm -hmm. by and large i think most people are ready to make a transition here um so we'll see what happens but just them taking such a hard line was was weird Mm -hmm. so at first it reminded me of you know somebody like fighting for betamax or fighting for hd dvd over blu-ray but then it made me think about like maybe they are just trying to buy time because some of the analysts were saying that hydrogen fuel cells could still become competitive with EVs in the coming years. But for now, technology or Toyota acknowledges that all electric vehicles are the future. So are they just, you know, upset that they picked the wrong horse or are, you know, is it possible that they could buy time and hydrogen fuel cells could be realized? I think it's a little bit of both. They did probably put too much into hydrogen. I think the infrastructure is just too tough. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really difficult. I think the production aspect of it and producing those cells, it's not that different than producing an electric uh, battery, uh, a battery for a car. Mm-hmm. Okay? 
it's more expensive right now because there's fewer of them. So I think that technology is there. It's more the refueling part of it that's going to be hard yeah. when it comes to hydrogen. But I again, I think it makes sense if this is your product line to offer again that sort of that gap uh, of vehicle if people don't want to go fully electric because they don't have confidence because they want to be able to drive further, whatever the case is, so they can still use the electric part of it, but also have that reliance on a gas engine. Mm-hmm. I get that. Again, what nobody understands is just coming out being opposed to it. That that yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah. All right, Anna, you ever buy a Betamax? I don't. I'm not sure. I know what that is. That's is it? Oh, oh that was like the pre VCR. Yeah. Yeah. VHS no. Or Betamax. Mm-hmm. No. It's all right. It's got a small place in my heart. Those were like huge, right? They were the tiny ones. Oh, the Betamax were smaller? Betamax were smaller. Like large Betamax that they used. Like some uh, news stations and stuff like that still use Betamax, but they are the larger cassettes. Did you buy laser discs too? Ooh, no, we had no, those in school. Yeah. <laughs> that's like the giant one. CDs. Yeah. The gi- yeah. Um, like records. <laughs> no, I missed out on that one. And those are harder to find. Those were like super expensive. I didn't have any, but like they were crazy expensive too. Yeah, but then you think of how much data... <laughs> those discs hold now but you still had to like flip them over it was like to watch the second half of back to the future turn disc over now (laughs) um all right let's move on to in case you missed it in case you missed it is a segment about you know some of the stories that were not as popular on the websites but maybe still stand to make a uh, big impact on the industry uh i'll go first with mine uh a business sues a couple who left a one-star google review and this one really really touched close to home here A Washington couple is getting sued for leaving a one-star Google review for executive roof services and filing a complaint with the Better Business Bureau. They say that the roofing company's receptionist was rude to them and that they were denied access to a project report detailing work that was being done on their roof. The business owner demanded the couple take down their reviews and has now sued them for $112,000 for defamation. The couple, turns out, wasn't even entitled to the report, because they hadn't hired their company, their landlord did. So it's a bunch of renters doing this. And regardless, the couple should be legally protected if the review is truthful. And it just made me think of, A, how crazy reviews have gotten online. And I mean, you know, uh, I have friends that are like elite trip advisor commenters, you know, the people mm-hmm. that are like pros on Yelp and stuff like that. And it is just a reminder that, you know, sometimes you can still be held, you know, liable for things that you say online. And Mm -hmm. I mean, although I do kind of side with the couple here, too, because I mean, it wasn't just one bad time with this receptionist. It was multiple. And eventually something had to be done and the keyboard warrior had to come out. Yeah. Well, and the owner called them and was like, I know where you live. Uh, (laughs) You should take this down before it goes any further. And I have he said something like. Um, I have no problem spending a bunch of money and suing you and was just really kind of nasty. So I don't think that that helped. Mm. Um, and, you know, this legal expert that comments uh, and said, like, I don't see I don't remember what his exact wording was like. I don't see how this is going to benefit the company. No. Yes. This is not it was basically work out well. a bad look regardless for the company. Yeah. So you just makes me think that, like, maybe someone's like just got an axe to grind over the situation and they're taking it to court, even though it is probably a very terrible idea and yeah. going to reflect poorly on their business. Like, remember that guy we covered that paid when the employee quit and he paid him all in pennies or whatever. Oh yeah. And then the everyone the just stormed his like Google page. Reviews, yeah. And, yeah. And they, his ranking was down to like a star and a half because everyone had read the story and we're just so like, I don't know, angered and offended by his treatment of this worker that they kind of tanked his um, reputation and people can easily do that i I don't it's crazy that there is so much importance and weight on these rating systems Mm -hmm. you know i mean to his point yeah they really didn't have a right to this report who cares if the receptionist has got a problem and i mean they could do legitimate damage to this business just because you know they're being a little pissy well this is the very definition of a pissing match yeah i mean they got pissed because the reception was mean to them and they couldn't get something that they didn't have access to to begin with so then they did that so then the business owner in case instead of just ignoring it mm-hmm. and doing a good job which would kind of knock this out and, and fix his rating fires back i mean this is ridiculous 
there's probably a the reason you would assume that this business got so upset about this bad rating is because they probably had a bunch of bad ratings. Yeah. Okay? So then maybe the boss is talking to the receptionist, but you need to be nicer. And that makes her mad. So she gets pissed off when people call. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> there just seems like this total cycle of ridiculous drama that just fed into this. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Doesn't help I mean, your business, though. It doesn't help your business. So for business owners, maybe a reminder that, you know, customer <laughs> service is, you know, really big right now for a reason. And as a consumer, that is something that I kind of always hold. Like, you know, it's something oh, you mean you hold a grudge. I mean, every once in a while, little, little, little bit. But when I have a negative experience, I know, like, okay, at least I have this one thing that I can do and go and just, you know, give you. Especially like after you work with a company for as long as you can to try and find a resolution, it's just like, all right, I guess we're gonna have to go zero stars for you, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna use big words. Well, I, I don't know though. I, you've been on Google before, right? And seen like some people will take the high road they get a bad review and they respond because you can do that yeah and um if you can sort of ask a question or give your side in a very respectful way i will overlook those usually you know what i mean you you see that the the company is like on top of it they're trying to address the reputation issue but they're also still trying to deal with that customer in a polite way Mm -hmm. i don't know that's actually a really good point because i have chosen companies with poor reviews or a couple of poor ratings because they responded with the entire story. Just mm-hmm. like, as we said, mm-hmm. every time you called, we didn't cause that issue. It's caused by this. And I'm right. Like, okay. So yeah. that also makes me think that, you know, they're, they're a little bit more accountable. Uh, so I don't know. It was just the, the incredible power of online ratings right now is insane. It's a little too much. <laughs> but also like as a consumer, to feel like you're being muzzled <laughs> True, because someone has more money than you and can take you to court. I mean, this woman that they interviewed her and she was like crying to the reporter about how she doesn't have the money for this. And, you know, yeah, that's a freaking roofie or roof leak, you know, like mm-hmm. to, to cause like that much despair in a person. It just seems like, like you said, Jeff, it's a pissing match. Yeah. He did not just come out of nowhere and cause that despair in her. I think. No, uh, I know. But I just think that like, it, okay, so the reviews hold a lot of weight, yes, but like, is it fair to come at it then with the resources of a company and like take on like a this? Well, it was a bad move. They were both or... they're both kind of wrong here. But at the end of the day, the company is more wrong because, well, maybe you guys are different. But what's the first thing you do whenever you're looking for somebody to do anything? I mean, I ask you to exactly. You yeah. ask somebody. Mm-hmm. So anybody now who's ever heard of this roofing company? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they say, well, the first thing they're going to say is, well, don't go to these guys. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, come on. Be yeah. smarter. Yeah. All right. Uh, Anna, what was your In Case You Missed It this week? Uh, so TV pitchman and inventor Ron Popeil has died um, at the age of 86. Mm. And when I learned this earlier in the week, I went down an absolute rabbit hole. Um, it was not productive, but I enjoyed it. Uh, so, cause all of his old commercials are like on YouTube or whatever, so you can find them all. And mm-hmm. I had forgotten about like all of the different products that he's been involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like the jargon that is credited as being like sort of invented by him, like, um, set it and forget it set and, and forget it. wait, there's more that, you know, mm-hmm. I just, I remember all that stuff from my childhood and I kind of relish the opportunity to explain to my children um, at some point what an infomercial was because I mm-hmm. like they still don't understand it when my husband and I try to tell them that when we wanted to watch TV we had to watch it at a time and then if we missed it we just missed it yeah you yeah. could only watch it that There's one no going time back. yeah and they're like what you know like that's not how Disney plus works yeah uh so I don't know it's sort of an uphill both ways kind of story like when I was a kid <laughs> well, but, we, went out, we went out to New York a couple years ago and we went to 30 Rock and I'm like, this is like NBC. This is where they made shows. And my kids are like, what does that mean? Whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What do you mean made shows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah they're never going to understand um, spray hair in a can also. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's still an incredible market for, for infomercials out there. I mean, those uh, tech specs or whatever feel like they play every other uh, commercial. But. I mean, uh, he was like pre Billy Mays. Yeah. You know, he was like, as soon as I saw this, I mean, it sounds weird to think that like a TV pitch man has a special place in your heart. But like when you're watching that like late night TV trying to fall asleep and you're like, I do need to dehydrate more foods. Yeah. I mean, all of this food waste. Yeah. And it just there's makes, got to be a better way. It's cheaper way to make <laughs> your own jerky. Be a better way. That's right. 
No, uh, man, the but wait, there's more. I know. But wait, <laughs> there's more. <laughs> the one that I remembered when I was reading through this was the pocket fisherman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember that one? That was good. He had lots of cool stuff. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Rest in peace, Ron Popiel. You will always have a place in my heart for the nostalgia. Just, I would love to like sit through all those infomercials one more time. Just like having a beer and like watch uh, it just sounds like it'd be a fun afternoon i enjoyed looking at the photo and the list of all the products and remembering how much i wanted them and then like kind of having the sigh of relief that i didn't buy it <laughs> i didn't buy them and i didn't get the second one for a dollar either um jeff what was your in case you missed it so i'm gonna try to bring out my um like summer blockbuster movie trailer voice okay, okay. we're listening in a world where electric vehicle startups don't go away, Lordstown Motors is back. So my story is about a hedge fund that came through and is giving Lordstown Motors $400 million to keep going. Now, for all the folks working at that plant, it's great. Mm-hmm. Glad. Good to see it. But you do have to wonder, like, what does it take for, for an, um, a, a non-gasoline automotive company to like go away Mm -hmm. because it just seems like there was so many nails potentially in the coffin here they're still facing subpoenas and legal arguments and everything else but this company the the name of the hedge fund is why ya2pn limited which sounds a little shady but it's actually yorkstown advisors they're a legit hedge fund they've got a bunch of other different funds out there working with a lot of different people so it's legit and they basically are going to be buying stock from Lordstown over the next three years um, to uh, potentially keep this place going. I want so, that job where you can just buy stock in companies that are accused of fraud and facing numerous lawsuits and just be like, well, didn't work out. Yeah, and why'd they choose Lordstown and not Nicola? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> Nicola's next. Maybe someone will sweep well, I mean, in that's and the, save it. Lordstown isn't publicly traded, though, right? So they're, oh. all of their money has come from private funds. Okay. I... I think you might be wrong about that, but I'm going to Because I know GM's got money oh, in Lordstown. It was Stone. an SEC filing. Okay. Uh, that uh, They made this investment. Um, so, yeah. I don't know. They're just, it's just interesting. I could not believe when I saw this that somebody else is they're sticking but it out. They so. are publicly traded. They are. Okay. But like we were talking about earlier, you know, I mean, maybe Lordstown's fake it till you make it is at least working. It got them, a, got, it got them I, three more years. Maybe it's the fact that it is a little bit more viable. I mean, Tesla's come out and said their truck isn't going to be ready as mm-hmm. soon as they thought. So there is a, I mean, truck sales continue to go up. People are buying more <laughs> of them. So maybe that's what these guys are looking at and thinking, hey, what's 400 million what's more? Yeah. Million. Well, and they just, you know, their executives, a couple executives just stepped down, right? So maybe they yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> got some overhead costs. Yeah. And- cleaned out some of the dead weight. <laughs> We're going to do this now. (laughs) Well, I mean, like you said, at least base level for the uh, people working in Lordstown, it's a great lifeline. Uh, Let's move on to our final thoughts this week. Uh, Anna, what's your final thought? I found out this week that olives are a fruit, and I would like to know when that happened. (laughs) I stopped at gross, and I didn't pursue the olive anymore. Oh. Just gross. Yeah. I love olives, but. Yeah. Fruit? That's weird. I know, right? Like, and and the fact that like I didn't know this whole time, this whole my life, yeah. I didn't know. So as your kids get older, they'll play that whole thing. Like, well, this isn't really a fruit. This is a vegetable, and all that. Are they already garbage. Do that. Yeah. yeah, tomatoes, so, yeah. a fruit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so throwing olives into the mix, I don't know. That's that doesn't seem fair. So I guess that's why you can put them in a drink because mm. you're not like. <laughs> oh. I mean. If they were a vegetable. A blue cheese stuffed olive, there might be nothing better. Love it. Mm. Any other fruits just, that you would stuff fr- with blue cheese, though? Not really. No. No, I, no, I don't think so. The fact that it's know. making David a little bit nauseous <laughs> yeah. is I just don't. priceless. Yeah. I we're going like, to have to replace There are mic. so few things, so many, so <laughs> few foods that can make David squirm. Yeah. That seems to be one of them. No, the blue cheese, blue cheese stuffed olive is just so disgusting. <laughs> and like uh, the first time they came in a martini, I was just like, could you get the abomination out of there? <laughs> the abomination. And then even. there's always somebody that's just like, oh, thank you. And you're just like, mm. Mm. and now I can smell them on you. Yeah, it gets a little cloudy in that glass. Mm-hmm. The only time olives are okay is when a small child is playing with them on their fingertips. That is adorable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff, what is your final thought this week? 
my final thought is I'm going to have one of those sort of nostalgic weekends because we talked about get the Masters of the Universe, the He-Man cartoon oh. that's on Netflix right now, which is more a little more adult. Mm-hmm. And then this weekend I'm going to go see that G.I. Joe Snake Eyes movie. Yeah. Wow. So it's like the two favorite toys I had when I was like a kid. So somewhere 10-year-old me is super excited. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to him too. Yeah. Well, let me know what you think of this. Uh, yeah, it's been kind of crapped on, but give it a run anyway. That is the best time to go and see a movie is when there have been nothing but negative reviews and you're just like, oh, no, I kind of liked it. Well, I think what kind of like actually started this was that other Netflix documentary, The Toys That Made Us. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think the, <laughs> the thing that got me the most was like when I realized they used like the same production mold for every single one of the He-Man guys. They just yep. put paint in them different mm, and stuff. And it's yeah. like, yeah. oh, man, like Man at Arms was the same size as He-Man? Oh, yeah. That ain't right. Yeah. <laughs> It's uh that show is incredible. And it actually it kind of makes me think about how people right now are, you know, what are the toys or the other items right now that, you know, our kids or other generations will be nostalgic about uh further down the road? Yeah. And or is that something that's just kind of like is that generational to us? You know. It's already circled back. So like my little girls like strawberry shortcake. Mm-hmm. And that oh, yeah. was like my thing when I was a kid and I was like, Okay, yeah, you get or like my little ponies is a oh. thing again. Okay. Um Except for they're all like updated for today, so they're all like a little bit cooler and oh, yeah. taller. The, like, why like, are they taller? I don't think taller the ponies pony. ever went out. Like my daughters love those. Did too. they? Yeah. yeah. Maybe well, it's just they're always there, and we just dip in and out. Dip in and out. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, it is going through a toys, uh, the section of a toy store, not or uh, you know whatever box store. A lot of the toys are the same. Mm-hmm. It's like I mean, and even just complete remakes of. Uh, like I enjoyed the Ghostbuster action figure line when I was a kid, and I happened to notice that they were making those again, specifically from the animated series. Just like, huh? The that's toys something. Are, toys are so much cooler than what we had. I mean, yeah. they are. They're just made better. They've got more stuff with them. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Like even like Legos. Legos are awesome. I mean, yeah. they were always great, but now they're really impressive. I think. I yeah. Know. All right. I don't really have a final thought. Just uh, be good to everybody and better to yourself. All right. Before we get out of here. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share what? the podcast. Hmm? What did you say? Yeah. <laughs> you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> David's looking for his signature closing. That's what he's going for. There. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to catch on. Be kind to each other. That one. I'm David Manti. And better to each other. Be better. Uh, we're going to nix that one. Uh, next week, <laughs> you're all animals. Race to the bottom. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. And email the podcast. You can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You might have noticed, but we didn't get a chance to do the live stream this week. We're going to give it another shot next week. It turns out it's more than just plugging a wire in and hitting play. So we're going we're gonna to try it again next week. Uh, so if you want to watch us live next week, hopefully Friday. Uh, also, you can subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. Make sure you get the podcast in your inbox first. All right, for Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti, and this is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.